1: Hello everyone and welcome to The New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of The New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today I will be talking to Professor François-Xavier Fauvel about his book, The Golden Rhinoceros, Histories of the African Middle Ages. The Golden Rhinoceros was published in English translation in 2018 by Princeton University Press, although the French version was published in 2013. Both of these are prize-winning books. The French version won the Grand Prix de Rendez-vous de l'Histoire, which recognizes a French-language book that has contributed significantly to advancing historical knowledge for the greater public. And the English version won the Medieval Book of the Year Award in 2018. A few words about our guest. Francois Xavier is a historian and archeologist of Africa. He holds the first permanent chair in African history at the prestigious Collège de France, for which he delivered his inaugural lecture in October 2019. In addition to his position at the college, Francois Xavier is based at the Trasse Laboratory at the University Toulouse-Jean Jaurès. His research interests are unusually wide-ranging. He has conducted extensive fieldwork in South Africa, Ethiopia, and Morocco, and published on many periods of African history, from the ancient to the contemporary, to, as we will be discussing today, the African Middle Ages. Francois Xavier, welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, thank you, Elisa.
1: So why don't we begin by introducing yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little about yourself. How did you become a historian of Africa?
2: Well, that's a, that's a long story. And um, I started actually by doing um, uh, studies in philosophy, and I started... a um, uh, um, university as a as a as a as a student in philosophy, I even went as far as starting a PhD dissertation, which I stopped after a year. And then, after a couple of uh, years, I eventually man- found that I was interested in 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 Africa, in, in history, in archaeology. But all these things did not reconcile. Well, in the sense that there was no place where I could basically do in France um, uh, archaeology related to Africa and history, etc. So I I started um, uh, a new um, uh, master thesis and then a PhD uh, dissertation in African history, modern African history, at the University of Sorbonne, and um, it was on the on the Representation of the of the Khoisan people in Western literature in Portuguese, Dutch, French, English, from the fifteenth to the nineteenth century. And um, meanwhile, I did my first uh, field missions in Southern Africa, and I became more and more interested in uh, ancient um, uh, African history. I mean, uh, what I, I mean the African history before there were a lot of um, uh, written sources in Western uh, languages. And then, guided by this uh, uh, frustration about modern history, I became more and more interested into more ancient African history. That's how I became, um, uh, I trained as an archaeologist on different uh, fields with different people, with different teams. And, uh, and then I accepted the position of director of the French uh, Center for Ethiopian Studies in Addis Ababa, where I lived um, three years. And, and then I moved from there to other places. I, 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 I directed excavations in Morocco, um, uh, et cetera. And so step by step, guided by uh, frustration about what I was uh, uh, doing, and uh, I, I eventually um, uh, created my own way, if I, if I can say this, you know, in, in, and, 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 and became a historian of ancient Africa and at the same time an archaeologist.
1: Well, I think it's certainly very comforting for everyone out there to know that uh, it takes a few tries to really find your way. But certainly, yes. this book has and failures
2: and, fa- and many failures. <laughs> but, uh, it's a story, as you, yeah, it's a story of um, of opportunities and failures and step by step. Um, uh, I eventually managed to construct something. So it's it was not a given from the start for for sure.
1: Yeah, it's a story of research. You know, being driven by a question. Absolutely. So this book, The Golden Rhinoceros, African Middle Ages, you begin by kind of bringing to us, the reader, this paradox about this period, the African Middle Ages. And and this paradox, you say, is one in which we have a golden age in Africa, literally and figuratively. And you ask, how could this period that is so radiant Be obscured so much in the surviving documentation this paradox of radiance and yet this lack of documentation, which is the question that drove you um, To 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 get to this to this project. So I wonder if you could kind of unravel for us more with a little bit more detail this paradox between the golden age and yet our lack of knowledge about this golden age.
2: It is true that um, Africa and uh, different regions of of Africa uh, participated uh, to this global phenomenon that that can be that can be labeled the Middle Ages, and that's how I frame my perception of um, uh, the, the, the 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 place of Africa uh, during the during the Middle Ages. In other words, you know, there is no reason why the the word Middle Ages should uh, belong to um, uh, to 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 Europe or to any other part of the of the world. I tend to see the Middle Ages as a global process of a certain type of interconnections with, with, with between different regions, the, a, a certain type of um, a certain um, uh, um, role of uh, of of um, of merchants. Um, in um, uh, in 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 interconnecting these um, uh, these regions, the role of um, of the Islamic world as an interface, um, uh, as a as a as a political and economical platform of um, uh, between uh, between different the different provinces of the of the medieval world, and um, and uh, and that's and and that's and that's the framework behind um, uh, the 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 way how I conceived the Golden, um, uh, golden Rhinoceros. So for me, there is, there is no doubt about it, and Africa, and Africa's, I should say, uh, different regions of Africa participated in this, um, uh, in this global uh, process. But now you're right, the question is, why is it that um, um, we don't know much about it? and uh there are several reasons for this i mean one is an ideological one I mean, there is a, there is a lack there is a lack of there is generally speaking a lack of knowledge about ancient africa and um not that there is no not that there are no sources but because there is a lack of interest <laughs> among in in the in the public or in the in the in the funding institutions or uh, in the higher education institutions etc about, um, about uh, ancient uh, Africa in, the, in general. But also, there is also a certain regime, regimen of documentation, and um, which I think is a, is a, is a, is a specificity of, um, of African history. In many cases, we don't have written sources produced by the very societies we are talking about. And so if one compares with Europe, Christian Latin Europe, which produced um, its own um, written sources. Uh, most historians worked work on these written sources, and when they need, they can add up to these written sources produced by Western Christian Latin um, uh, societies. Other kind of sources, such as uh, 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 external written sources or archaeology, etc. But the main Body of knowledge and and scholarship created about Europe is based on sources produced by European um, uh, societies. This is not the case in in Africa, except in a few exceptions like Ethiopia. But uh, for most of the societies we are talking about, for instance, Mali in the 14th century or Zimbabwe in the 14th century or or the the Kingdom of Canem in the 11th century, or the Kingdom of Ghana in the the, the 11th century. Uh, We we don't have sources written by, from the inside of these um, uh, societies. And that that makes a big difference. That makes a big uh, documentary difference, but that makes also a big narrative and, uh, difference and these documentary gaps and narrative discontinuity we have to fill, we have to we have to correct and we have to reconstruct an, uh, an, an, a narrative. How do we do this? We do this with um, piecemeal of other um, uh, documents which can be uh, written sources produced from the outside by visitors or by diplomats, we can fill this up or, 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 or correct this, um, uh, this, this gap by uh, archaeology, by, um, by, by findings, by objects in museums, uh, by uh, historical linguistics, by a number of, or sometimes by also a few, um, uh, written documents that have survived, uh, 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 etc. So, the only, the only way, the only possible way we can work on ancient African history is by uh, uh, putting together a number of highly heterogeneous um, uh, uh, pieces that do not fit well um, uh, uh, together. And we have to work with it. So some people might say, this is less than history. This is not real history. This is less interesting. For my part, I say, well, it's much more challenging. And so it is much more interesting. And in a way, it's it's history par excellence. And that's why I like so much um, this 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 job of African history. And that's, and that's also why so many people so many um, uh, um, colleagues not working on Africa and uh, and, and so many so many and, 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 and such a large audience also like it. There is something like an investigation you know, in, in the in the past
1: and that's very much the approach that you take in this book. you really you investigate with the full force of the skills you have as a historian as an archaeologist even as a philosopher of history to to try to take objects or archaeological sites or written sources and to go into them layer by layer with us alongside for the ride to try to see what we can know
2: yes yes absolutely you you, you absolutely you're right and i mean Part of what I'm doing in these books is also to accept the um, uh, the, 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 situa- the, the, the particular discomfort of, um, of being a historian of ancient Africa, and, um, uh, and, and to accept that what many people can perceive as, um, as a liability, as something less than history, is actually Exactly what history is, and um, uh, 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 and um, and what I like is that um, uh, uh, the problem of having few sources, the problem of having sources that did, that do not reconcile well, um, the problem of having just tiny windows and not a continuous narrative, right? these problems become the very topic of the of the hist- of the stories i want to i, I want to uh, i want to tell
1: and to to further complicate this challenge, you say as you're laying out this this paradox of lack of documentation and yet this golden age that it's not simply that we don't have um written sources that are produced internal to the societies that we're interested in looking at, we're also coming off of several hundred years of what you call this this coercion underneath the land, but also, of course, above the surface of the land with the history of of colonialism and also particularly its effects on material culture and material remains. Can, Can you unpack that a little bit?
2: Yes, it, yes, absolutely. And th- so many layers of time have accumulated between the um, ancient, the, the past of, of ancient African societies and, and today. Well, in a way, it's true anywhere on earth, but it, it's all the more true in Africa and um, uh, for different reasons because not only uh, did time pass, but also a number of erasing processed, processes um, uh, took place, and of course, yes, colonialism was one of them, and uh, um, uh, looting um, uh, was uh, uh, and is um, uh, one of them, and negation of the of the of of, of history is um, uh, is also um, uh, one of them, and there is a. Um, there is a process of there is a there is a there is a process of oblivion uh, that uh, that uh, that that compounds the problem of accessing the past in um, in, um, in 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 Africa, and uh, that makes things all the more uh, complicated. I mean, it is it is it is fascinating and very frustrating that. Um, there are some, some, some major sites are still missing. You know? And uh, I, I can give you the example of the, of, the, of, the, of the once very famous capital of the kingdom of Mali in the 14th century. Okay. This is a place that was described by the famous historian Ibn Khaldun. Uh, it was described by the famous Mamluk chronicler Al-Umari. It was even described by the traveler who lived there okay, for eight to nine months, even Batuta. But we don't know where this capital was, and how how is it possible? I mean, can you imagine the capital of a of a European kingdom that would disappear like this to the point that we don't know where it is? Okay, and uh, and how can it disappear? Is it just that? it was, you know, overflowed by a, by a river, or that it was, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what really happened? Or is it just that we don't know where to look at, or what, how can a major place like this just disappear? Of course, it does not technically disappear. It's just that we don't know where it is. We don't know how to look. We don't know to, 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 to which source we should, we should rely on and um, uh, and um, uh, and uh, 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 but that I find this absolutely fascinating. That places belonging to time just separated from us by a few centuries can just disappear like this. And um, I could give you many, many, many examples of this. I can give you a, a, another example in Ethiopia, and um, with the capital of uh, Ifat, also a fourteenth to fifteenth century. Um, Muslim sultanate um, that that had disappeared, and we were able, with colleagues of mine, ten years ago, to uh, discover uh, the capital of this um, of this um, uh, sultanate, and uh, it was in a, in a it was in a region that uh, we actually. No one could, no one could 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 think that the capital would be there because it was just twenty kilometers from the from the Christian kingdom, and uh, our first um, uh, reflex was to was to was to was to look far to the east, you know, hundreds of kilometers of, uh, afar, and. Um, uh, 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 and we, and and we visited there, and we found many other places of my, of, of minor interest, etc. But no capital. And then eventually, that's when we changed our mind, and um, and um, and we and we visited other landscapes, and we were able to to find after a number of failures, we were able to find this uh, this uh, this capital of um, of um, of Ifat, but. Uh, but in the case of the capital of Mali, been, no one has been able to, 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 to find where this capital was. So there are many places like this. There are many often names in uh, Arabic sources of the Middle Ages that we don't know where they were these kind of mysteries i find absolutely fascinating not not just not not because i am a romantic um, uh, archaeologist and you know kind of indiana jones would like to would like to discover uh, uh, unknown places but because um it um it it emphasizes the, the 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 very nature of um uh, the 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 regimen of documentation that the African past is, and the and the, and the kind of investigation that our work work of uh, of, of, of historian uh, consist and um, uh, in, I find this uh, I find this um, uh, extremely interesting to to, um, uh, to to do, and if only because it's extremely um, uh, um, challenging. It is very. It, very, very challenging intellectually and, uh, and mythologi- methodologically.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
1: well i i think in some ways how challenging it is it comes out of of course in some you know great tragedy and but at the same time it it's very humbling which is a is an important corrective to certain ways that history has been written in the past and You have this lovely metaphor um, to kind of distill this when you say that you've preferred the stained glass window to the grand narrative fresco that would have produced only the illusion of an authoritative discourse. And this use of the metaphor stained glass, of course, is is very effective in that it immediately brings to mind kind of the European high middle ages and an orients maybe Eurocentric audience who's picked up the book to have perhaps that image, but it's also much more than that because it, you explicitly state in the beginning of this book that you are, you are rejecting an implicit pressure in academic publishing to present the authoritative discourse, the one that is utterly complete. And I wondered if if this was not only something that the the research process and the writing process brought you to, but also a way of unlearning or thinking about the practice of history that you personally had to reckon with.
2: Yeah. Yes. You. Yes. Absolutely. I like this metaphor, you know, of the of the stained glass, or yeah, and um, because it. Uh, not because it uh, <laughs> attracts the attention, you know, to the cathedrals or whatever. It's not. It's not what I am interested in. What I like is that uh, a stained glass is uh, is made of a number of fragments, and uh, and that are pasted together by by lead, you know. And and you do not pretend that the pieces of glass fit together. And on the contrary, you make the lead all the more apparent. And that's what I want to do in this, that's what I wanted to do in this book. I mean, the story we can tell is a story made of fragments. And um, instead of lying to the reader, by by drawing a continuous narrative whereby you would just paste the fragment as if it was the original image by by lying about the fact that they are fragments. Uh, instead of this, I want, to, <laughs> I want to have these thick pieces of lead, you know, that 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 are both both the, the that, that do not hide the fact that these are fragments and at the same time that connect the fragments with um, uh, with one another. So, what I like is the joint you know, between these uh, um, uh, fragments of, um, uh, of, um, uh, of glasses. And, um, and by pasting together these fragments, um, you create an image, which is an imperfect um, uh, image, and where the joint is as important as the pieces of, um, uh, of glass. Why is it so important to show that the lead joint uh, is there? Uh, because, because, because the way how you historian reconstruct the past is just one possibility. There are other possibilities, and you can and based on on these fragments, you can tell many different stories. And the many different stories you can tell to the reader is part of is part of the story. And um, if I were to tell the story in a grand narrative way. That would be probably more satisfying to some reader, but that would also be lying, lying because it is not true that we can that we that we that we that we must tell the story that one way, you know? <laughs> And let me give you an example: the kingdom of Ghana, okay, uh, the ancient kingdom of Ghana. And, uh, Which is not modern Ghana, you know, and uh, which is uh, the the medieval kingdom of Ghana was in the south of today's Mauritania. We have two um, major fragments. One is provided by an Andalusian uh, Arab uh, writer, Al Bakri, in the mid 11th century, and one is provided a century later by the famous Arab cartographer, Al Idrisi. Okay, these are the two main windows and other, we have other tiny fragments, but these are the two, um, uh, the two major fragments that, that, um, that we have. A century apart, okay? Nothing before, nothing in the middle, almost nothing after, okay? And the problem is that these two pieces do not reconcile well. It does not reconcile well at all, okay? And why? Because the first one says that, um, uh, The kingdom of Ghana is situated in a plain, okay, and um, uh, and that the um, and that the he gives the name of the plain, okay, so that fits well with an archaeological site that we know in South Mauritania, in what is today in the the desert, etc. He said that the kingdom is pagan, okay, and then a century later, um, uh, Idrisi goes on to say that the kingdom of Ghana is Muslim. So. Okay, so we understand that something like a conversion occurred in the meantime. Okay, we don't have the detail because we don't have a continuous narration, but we guess that, um, a dynast- that there was a dynastic change or maybe just a conversion of the dynasty, and that's that's okay. But then he goes on and he says that a river passed in the middle of the city, but you know there is no way. That there was a river in the region that there was that, that that was described by Al-Bakri a century earlier. There is no way. So not only did something happen, a dynastic change or a conversion of the dynasty, but but what? But did um, uh, did did the capital move a few hundred kilometers toward a river? But that's a major change, you know. And um, and if and what if one of the two writers was just wrong? You know, what if al idrisi was just confusing the kingdom of Ghana with, some, with, with, with another one, or what if al Bakri was wrong? So basically, we cannot be sure that they are talking of the same thing you know, of the same kingdom. if everything else has changed, you know the religion, the place, the city, and the dynasty I mean what is left? <laughs> what is left of the kingdom of, um, of ghana so we can make the hypothesis that one of them is wrong but which one should we should, should 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 we should we should we preserve you know and we can make also the hypothesis that the two are right you know? but in that case we should decide that there is something wrong in the very heart of the description of one or another so we can the only thing we can make is choose the hypothesis that we want that we want to favor but we cannot not tell it to the reader okay and the the so what I think I must do as a historian is just is just list the um, list the problems and um and create a landscape of problems and give to the reader the the elements in my possession, you know, to, to think about the problems that the kingdom of Ghana is, and that's what I'm doing in a number of chapters in this um, uh, in this book. I cannot choose, and um, uh, and I, I, I still cannot choose now. I have different hypotheses. I could just I can just ex- you know expose these different hypotheses, and um, uh, and, uh, and 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 so. That's why this fragmentary, documentary regimen of African history, I have, no, I, I have no choice but to narrate it in a fragmentary uh, way. Hence the, the metaphor of the uh, stained glass.
1: So where does oral tradition come in to y- this this source
2: landscape? That's a very good question. Uh, that's a very good and very um, uh, complex um, uh, question. Uh, I am a big fan of uh, oral tradition. It's, but at the same time, I have to recognize that there is also in the public uh, uh, an, altern- an alternance of naivete or distrust about oral tradition in um, in Africa. Many people, I mean, most people, don't know what oral tradition is, or confuse oral tradition with just you know oral information, or etc. And uh, oral tradition are a real thing, and they are a real historical tool to reconstruct the past. But uh, what I think is that they are very useful to reconstruct things that happened. During the last two or three or four centuries, they can be, they must be used in a critical way like any other um, uh, uh, historical, historical material, like you no know, archaeology or like a written source. There is no problem. These oral tradition are a real historical source, but they cannot be used to reconstruct things that happened, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, it has, it's, it's, it's useless to reconstruct things that happened a thousand years ago. It cannot go that far back. And all researchers, all historians, who have worked on oral tradition show that there is a kind of sealing, uh, you know, around the 16th or 17th century. And that, and that oral tradition, uh, uh, Cannot go through this this um, this um, this this ceiling. Uh, so uh, <laughs> you can tell me, okay, but what about uh, the epic of Sunjata sunjata in 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 the Malinke and, uh, the world in 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 West Africa. Yes, I mean this is an epic, and uh, this is an epic. That that is extremely interesting. That narrates the creation of the of the of the empire of Mali, an event that most historians agree took place around the 13th century, and uh, but it is an epic, and um, and although it encapsulates you know big events, and that really took place, and a historical figure like sunjata that took that that did exist what else is true in this epic you know? and um and i'm obliged to say not much and uh, that would be you know it is it is as difficult to reconstruct the 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 events of the of the of the imp, of the creation of the empire of mali based on the epicum sunjata as it is to uh, reconstruct um, uh, um, the Carolingian, uh, the, the creation of the Carolingian Empire um, uh, in the you know in the eighth century, based on twelfth or thirteenth century chansons de geste um, uh, in um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in in French, I mean, you cannot you cannot reconstruct. Uh, uh, things that belong to, 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 to such a distant past based on oral tradition. That's why, uh, that's why in my Golden Rhinoceros oral tradition takes almost no, uh, takes no uh, have, have no place.
1: So we're talking about this book, the African Middle Ages, the 7th century to the 15th century, roughly. And you, you chose to use this term, Middle Ages, and you talk a little bit about the choice of Middle Ages with regard to something like medieval or a term like pre-colonial. Can you reason through this decision with us?
2: Well, I, I think that talking about pre-colonial history uh, is, a, is a problem uh, because it, it, it put the emphasis on the, on on the period that would on the period that would come later, you know, the the, the, the colonial period, and um, and I think there is a kind of you know there would be a kind of theolo- teleological you know reasoning in, in, in calling everything that took place before by the name of what took place later. And uh, I don't like this expression of pre-colonial history, and, um, and 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 I never use it actually. So I like the I like the idea of speaking of ancient African history. And um, and what I personally call ancient is before there were plenty of written sources and uh, and uh, because i think that the characteristics of ancient african history is presi- precisely this lack of written sources and the specific challenge that it poses to 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 paste together you know um, heterogeneous pieces of glass and uh, that's the specific challenge that makes African history so interesting in my view, and that's what what I called ancient African history. But now, within this uh, indistinctive (laughs) uh, um, uh, uh, ancient African history, I think uh, there is a medieval period, which corresponds more or less to what we call mm, the Middle Ages in European history, or what is called the medieval or classical period in islamic history and, uh, and 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 it's not illegitimate to 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 call this period of african history medieval and uh, i think that's perfectly fine and uh, and and because um, because these societies many societies in africa uh, were connected with other medieval societies in the rest of the in the rest of the world and um, and so why not calling um, these these this this connection between different provinces of the of the world the middle ages and this is what i do <laughs> I'm not alone to do this. Nope. I mean, there is a there is a current of thought today that uh, that uh, that that globalized the Middle Ages, and um, uh, and that tends to think of the of the Middle Ages as a global process, etc. There are many discussions about it, discussions about it, and, um, and 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 there is this you know this this global turn in the in the in the um, in the in the in the medieval studies, and uh, all this is perfectly relevant. All these is absolutely fascinating, and I think that, uh, and I think, yes, Africa has something to say, and on the tomb, because not only it is, a, it is obvious that African societies participated in um, um, uh, this process, but also because it's very interesting to rethink the Middle Ages, and, uh, and thanks to uh, what Africa uh, 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 bring, you know, in the, into the, into this, um, into this, um, this new uh, 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 paradigm it obliged to rethink, you know, what the what the what the global uh, what globalization was um, uh, in the in the Middle Ages. It was obviously not the same sort of globalization as the modern one, um, but still, I mean, the um, uh, it's 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 uh, it, it it was a, a, a kind of globalization and. Um, and uh, it is all the more obvious when, when you when you look, uh, for instance, at the way how medieval cartographers such as Idrisi um, uh, represented the the ecumen, you know, and uh, it was a global ecumen. and uh, it and uh, uh, it's also very interesting to to read um, Ibn Battuta uh, Ibn Battuta's uh, uh, narrative of his travel. Um, in the in in the, uh, the along the global acumen, and including in different regions of Africa, and uh, in that uh, in that light, and um, and uh, I tend to think that precisely um, uh, uh, because cartographers like Idrisi were able to represent a global world, and precisely because travelers. Like Ibn Battuta or Jewish traveler Benjamin of Tudela or other um, uh, travelers were able to travel almost everywhere, uh, at the cost of lying in many places to make us believe that they were everywhere, is very revealing in the sense that they all knew that the Ecumen was uh, travelable, you know, but they were not completely able to do it. In other words, products, goods traveled and they knew it. Gold, you know, went from Zimbabwe to Europe, and slaves went from, um, you know, Kenya to China, and uh, carnelian went from uh, India to Ethiopia. And so things traveled, but people could not really. They could just feel, you know, they could just experience the, the completedness of the world, but they could not completely um, uh, um, um, do it. And 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 this uh, con- Contradictory feeling about the completedness of the of the ecumen is, I think, a characteristics of the the sort of globalization that the that the Middle Ages was. In other words, uh, Middle Ages for me is not a, is is as much a geography as a time period, and it is within this geography and time period that. I try to um, to, uh, to 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 draw the portrait of Africa as a as a partner of other provinces of the of the medieval world.
1: So let's have maybe a more concrete example for our listeners, because the book, as we've said, ranges quite far afield, all over the continent. And it's divided into these 34 kind of vignettes. And it's really a book that is um, exceptional for teaching, because these vignettes are are short. Some are three, four pages. Some are six, seven, eight, a little longer. But they're each accompanied with just these beautiful illustrations. And then the citations and and footnotes and all that, are kind of taken out and put in a short bibliographic essay at the end. So you can really focus on this exploratory process that that you take us on. And I I thought maybe we could linger for a second on chapter 23, which is called The Work of Angels. And it's about Lalibela, which is this um, archaeological complex in the Ethiopian highlands. And and if you're listening and you've never seen the Church of St. George at Lalibela, Google it so that you see what this magnificent uh, monument looks like. And I wanted to read a paragraph that describes it a little bit to give a sense of the lyrical quality of the language you have in this book. You say on page 155, the church of Georgis is not, strictly speaking, a building, since it was not constructed from pieces of stone or wood placed on top of one another. It has been hewn both inside and out, Carved and hollowed out from the living rock. It displays no more joints than the tunic of Christ does seams. Great effort was expended to make the work of man invisible to better celebrate the work of God. Such a beautiful paragraph.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Elisa.
1: So, so tell us about, about the work of angels and the, the question at the heart of this complex.
2: Uh, the, what I wanted to convey you know, in this chapter is... Um, is not only that this site is wonderful and um and and deserve to be visited once in in one's life you know <laughs> it's 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 an exceptional um uh, site um a complex of a dozen churches that are literally sculpted in the into the, um, into, the um, into the into the rock and um but At the same time, it's also exceptional because of the challenge that it poses to a historian. What do we do with the site which is sculpted? And not everybody understands this. You know, I've, I've, I've worked extensively in Lalibela with other people, and we have sometimes tourists okay, from Ethiopia or from, from Western countries or from Ethiopians living in other countries. Okay, so we have many sort of tourists that, that ask questions and, um. And so um, uh, uh, what people don't understand is how challenging it is to work on this site, because, because it is so uncommon to have a site which is entirely sculpted. Think of the difference between this and a real archaeological site. An archaeological site is made of deposits, layers. Okay? So basically the ruins of the, 13th, of the 12th or 13th century site are below our feet. Okay, and then a number of layers that belong to the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries okay, have, have, have 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 been added to the to, to the to the to the to the to the soil, and uh, and we are and we are working on it, and with so 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 we just have to excavate and to go through these different layers that have that are accumulated, and we can recover uh, uncover uh, the 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 past, but. It doesn't work with uh, a complex that has been entirely excavated, because of sculpted, because the former layers has been removed by the very work of sculpting it, and so everything that was interesting in that, in everything that could doc, that could help us document. The, the people who made it, has been removed by these people. okay? In the very process of creating this, these monuments and, and, uh, and, and this complex. So what can we say about it? Not much. And so, we are trapped by the discourse that we have created in the past around, around this site for instance, that it was created by angels in just a few days, or any other kind of hypothesis like this, whether it, it, it is um, uh, um, uh, um, created by the local people, or by the religious people, or by scholars. And um, how can we find our own way of... Um, of reinterpreting the past how can we and where can we find new sort of evidence how can we do with this so, and that's that's what i explain in this uh, chapter about uh, about lalibela that we had to devise a kind of new vertical archaeology based on based on Evidence that can still be observed, not beneath our feet, but above our heads, <laughs> and uh, and, um, uh, and uh, I cannot tell more. But you know, I give an ex- I give several examples in this uh, in this um, uh, in this chapter, um, uh, we had to invent an, a methodology adapted to this. This site, and it worked, and it uh, and uh, and instead and now instead of uh, being prisoner of past narratives in this and and instead of believing that it was created all of a sudden uh, in the 13th century, uh, now we know that this site was. Created and developed over several centuries, that it started before the 13th century, and that it continued to be transformed several centuries after um, uh, the 13th century. So it's a it's a much more complex representation, and but also a much more interesting representation of the uh, of the of the past. And uh, you can if I if if I also can give you. And, uh, and, uh, news about about sigil massa have been have been working and other researchers have been working at at, at, at Lalibela sorry in uh, in Ethiopia uh, during the uh, during the, the recent years after the book was uh, was completed and now we've discovered um, um, a new in lalibela a new place that belonged to the 12th century and uh, there was a you know there was a, in lalibela a, a huge hill, which is actually a heap of uh, spoils coming from the very sculpting of the churches in the, in the 13th century and so we hypothesized at some point that uh, this hill could not be a natural hill was that it was that it was, a, that it was a, 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 an artificial mound and if it was so and if it was created in the 13th century that meant that there was something below and we were right actually so that we, have, we had now a, 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 a com- an entire um pre-christian um uh, uh, complex uh, that belongs to the 12th century and that uh, that that is currently being um, excavated and uh and that will eventually multiply the the the, the surface uh, of the of the of the site of um, uh, lalibela and the potential for 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 further you know visit touristic visit of the of this wonderful uh, site
1: well that's just wonderful and exciting news which we all need right now so this is very encouraging the powers of research uh, showing us new ways forward so as we kind of conclude, I wondered if you could tell us about the Golden Rhinoceros, the title of the book and one of the chapters of the book. Yeah. Why this object, why this title, and what is this Golden Rhinoceros?
2: Well, I, what I, the reason why I chose this, um, this title, which, as you said, is uh, just the title of one of the chapters, is because it, you know, it, it, uh, it captures, I think, the the very idea of the connection of Africa with the rest of the world. I mean, the rhinoceros being um, an African animal, and gold being the one of the most um, famous and valuable gold that circulated between Africa and the rest of the world. I mean, gold was basically the reason why Africa was known in the Middle Ages in the rest of the in the rest of the world. Think, for instance, of the Catalan Atlas, this famous map that was produced by Jewish cartographers in the 14th century in the Balearic Island. It represents King Musa of Mali with a huge uh, gold um, uh, uh, ball, uh, 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 orb in his hand. I mean, he was famous for exporting gold and uh, to, to toward the islamic world and toward the um, and toward the rest of the of the of the world so africa was famous for gold and um, and so by associating gold and rhinoceros i mean it, i think this title captures you know, the, the 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 very connection between africa and the rest of the world in the in the middle ages now what i mean this this golden rhinoceros comes it it really exists and it comes from um, a site in today's South Africa uh, at the site of Mapungubwe which is a hill that overlooks the um, Limpopo River which, which draws the border between South Africa and Zimbabwe and on the top of this hill was discovered in the f- 1930s by white settlers uh, a hoard of, um, of gold. with these rhinoceros and with a number of other things, etc. Basically, all this was was found in graves and it was looted by these people. And then after a few days, one of the looters um, uh, understood that it was wrong and wrote to his former history professors in Pretoria, who was Leo Fouché, and Leo Fouché understood very quickly that it was a major discovery. And then from then, the site has been excavated for decades, and now it's uh, on the list of the World Heritage Site by the UNESCO. What is interesting is that we have a site at Mapungubwe which is very far from everything else we know. Okay? It's very far from the site of the Swahili coast, etc. Obviously, the people that were buried there in the 12th century were not Muslim, we are not Christians. Okay. Uh, they were buried, if only because they were buried with their riches, you know, gold, etc., which is generally not the case for Christians and Muslims. But still, they were connected with um, the rest of the world through the Islamic, through the Swahili merchants and through the Islamic uh, merchants. How do we know this? Because in the graves, on top of the, uh, besides the the golden rhinoceros and other uh, golden objects, there were imports, such as a shard of celadon ceramics that was produced in China, or Indo-Pacific beads by the thousands, etc., etc. So these people were well connected. In a way, they were at the end of the chain, the long chain of... uh, Inter of articulation and interconnection between Africa and the rest of the um, of the world. So, so that's a that's a very good example of how an archaeological site can be an illustration of uh, of a, of a, of a of a connected and uh, of a connected place. But it's also very interesting. This site is also very interesting because um, because of the history of how we know what we know, and uh, that. Uh, this site was looted is a very common feature in many places in Africa. And, um, and very often we historians and we archaeologists, we have to deal with this. I mean, we have to deal with often uh, objects. And so <laughs> our job is first to start trying to reconstruct the way how this object arrived to us. You know? And many among historians of Africa work sometimes from uh, objects that are in museums. And objects in museums are uh, often um, uh, objects which have been looted at some point in the past, and uh, it's, it's, and we have to work with it. It is also one of the conditions under which we work. And uh, but also the fact that the looters were white settlers. It also put the emphasis on the fact that there was a colonial period, and um, whereby um, uh, um, uh, uh, white people had a privileged access to uh, archaeological resources symbolic resources looting of the past and uh, and and which had the side effect of depriving local people of their own past and heritage and all this is also you know all this colonial context is also part of uh, how we deal with the, with the history um, of of uh, ancient um, uh, Africa, and we cannot uh, we cannot forget it. We cannot uh, obliterate part of th- this 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 uh, this this reality. And um, I cannot no I I cannot work uh, at an archaeological site like uh, like Mapungubwe without uh, acknowledging that this site. Was looted by white people 80 eight years ago, and, um, and and because just because this I mean this golden this golden rhinoceros arrived to us both thanks to this looting and despite this looting and this contradictory situation this paradoxical situation is uh, is a uh, is a, is in itself a metaphor of what it is to work on. On the best of uh, African societies.
1: Xavier, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this wonderful book.
2: Thank you very much, Elisa.